Hello, everyone. Welcome to this program entitled Advances in Disease Management of Generalized Myasthenia Gravis by Reducing Levels of IgG Autoantibodies. This program is supported by an educational grant from Argenix and is provided by Academic CME. I'm James Howard, Chip Howard to many of you. I'm a professor of neurology, medicine, and allied health at the University of North Carolina School of Medicine in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I'm joined by two colleagues, Vera Brill, Professor of Neurology at the Ellen and Martin Prosserman Center for Neuromuscular Diseases, the University Health Network at the University of Toronto in Toronto, Canada, and John Vissing, MD, Professor of Neurology, Director of the Neuromuscular Clinic and Research Unit at the University of Copenhagen, the Copenhagen Neuromuscular Center in Denmark. Welcome, folks. Thank you. Thank you. Our agenda for today is going to include the pathophysiology of generalized MG and the rationale for targeted non-steroidal immune-mediated therapies. And this will be given by Professor Vissing. I'll then speak about FCRN inhibitors in myasthenia, and we'll discuss their mechanism of action and the clinical trial data from the ADAPT study that was published in mid-2021. And we'll follow this uh, by Professor Vera Brill discussing implementation of therapy with emerging and approved novel agents for individualized management of generalized MG. Let me turn the screen over to Dr. Vissing. Well, thanks, Chip. Uh, so this will be a talk about the pathophysiology of generalized myasthenia in the context of, of uh, uh, finding some more targeted therapies uh, for, for myasthenia gravis as opposed to the more uh, uh, the, the immunosuppressants we use today that have a quite widespread effect on the immune system. So this cartoon uh, shows you the neuromuscular junction with the nerve patron here and the postsynaptic membrane. And it shows you the three proteins that are targeted with the antibodies. First and foremost, the acetylcholine receptor and uh, musk here, or the muscle-specific tyrosine kinase, uh, which is uh, important in aggregating the acetylcholine receptors. And next to it here, the LLP4, or the lipoprotein receptor-related protein 4, which uh, activates musk and thus also is important in the clustering of the acetylcholine uh, receptor. So that there are a number of other antibodies you can find in myasthenia. Um, so for instance, uh, directed against the riotine receptor one and against titine, as you can see, they are quite far away from the um, neuromuscular junction that they are not really pathogenic in, in by themselves, but are biomarkers that, that uh, can tell something about the prognosis. Usually if you have them, the disease is more severe. And, and there might be some other antibodies out there that we have still not discovered. Some patients do have antibodies against uh, acrin, but it's still unresolved whether they are really uh, pathogenic. So um, the pathophysiology of autoantibody-mediated myasthenia gravis is quite similar to a number of other uh, autoimmune diseases. You lose tolerance, activate T cells that again activates B cells that transform into plasma cells and, and then produce monoclonal antibodies. Uh, the three antibodies we just talked about that will uh, target the neuromuscular junction and, uh, it, it, and then produce the uh, fatigue and weakness that we see in myasthenia gravis. Um, this shows you the proportion of patients that have these three antibodies. So the vast majority of patients have acetylcholine receptor antibodies 
10 to 15% have MOSC antibodies, and a very, very small fraction here have ALA.4 antibodies. This may vary, you know, according to the population you're in. So, for instance, here in Scandinavia, the proportion of acetylcholine receptor positive patients are about 95%, and we hardly have any, very few percent MOSC uh, patients here. Notably, there are here 5% of the patients who uh, do not have any antibodies. This proportion was much larger. If we go back uh, 10, 15, 20 years, it was maybe 15 to 20% of the patients. Uh, and it has come down to 5% because we have, we've gotten much better at detecting uh, these three antibodies. And it might be that a lot of these 5% still have these three antibodies that we, we are just not good enough uh, to, to uh, detect them. Um, an important distinction between the antibodies here is that the acetylcholine receptor um, antibodies uh, can activate complement and MOSC uh, antibodies cannot, they do not uh, have the complement cascade in, in them. And this really um, uh, brings us to some of the pathogenic mechanisms of how uh, acetylcholine receptor antibodies work in myasthenia. There are principally three uh, modes of action. One is a simple blockade of the acetylcholine uh, receptors here by the antibodies. This is a quite benign situation and reversible situation. Uh, another situation is that a cross-linking of the antibodies, it's not really shown very well here in the cartoon, but the cross-linking will eventually lead to an internalization of the uh, acetylcholine receptors and then loss of, of uh, the receptor. It's not a very serious condition because you can actually uh, renew uh, the acetylcholine uh, receptors. So a more serious uh, mechanism is the complement activation, which, which is uh, quite destructive to the uh, to the, the membrane. As, and as we can see here, the membrane is uh, flattened. And this is in fact what you will see. And this is an EM picture of a healthy muscle here to, to the left and uh, from a patient with myasthenia gravis on the right. What you see here is the, the highly folded postsynaptic membrane with a huge area for interaction between acetylcholine and, and, and the acetylcholine receptor, which has completely gone here in a sort of burned out myasthenia patient that has not been treated well enough. So there has been disruption, disruption of the postsynaptic membrane, leaving a very small area for, for interaction. And typically when you reach this uh, situation, uh, the, the condition is not amenable to uh, medical treatment. So the, the, there are several mechanisms how you can modulate uh, antibody activity in myasthenia gravis. One is inhibiting the production. Uh, this can be done with conventional immunosuppression using corticosteroids, azathioprine or methotrexate that have a quite broad effect on many aspects of the immune system or more selectively with a, a B cell depletion um, uh, with a drug which, which is registered now with rituximab. Um, or you can remove the antibodies. Classically, this has been done with uh, plasma exchange or by neutralizing them uh, with the IVIG infusion, uh, but more recently uh, with the use of FCRN inhibition, as we will come back to. And lastly, uh, you can inhibit uh, complement activation and in this way prevent uh, destruction of the um, neuromuscular junction. So the, the general limitations of the current immunosuppressants uh, are that they are very non-selective. They uh, have a widespread uh, effect on the immune system. Uh, and uh, they also are limited by a delayed treatment response in most cases. You often have to monitor the therapy as well because of side effects with uh, bone marrow suppression and liver toxicity. 
Cost is generally not a problem. They are quite cheap because they've been all long, uh, around for a long time. But also because they have been uh, there for uh, ages, the, the data uh, is very limited on their efficacy. So there hasn't been really clinical trials carried out in, in uh, many cases of these drugs that we have been using for decades. So uh, besides uh, uh, those drugs that are classically used, and besides the pyridostigmine, which of course is the simple way of treating myasthenia gravis by preventing the, um, uh, uh, the degradation of uh, acetylcholine, uh, you can also um, uh, do thymectomy, which is of course not a new invention either, and in this way, uh, prevent uh, plasma plasmoblasts and memory cells uh, from uh, uh, producing problems. Uh, but newer uh, uh, approaches here is B-cell depletion. Uh, one is the CD20 with rituximab that we know uh, of and has been used for quite a number of years. But CD20 uh, uh, cells or, or antibodies against CD20 cells is also, uh, has also been developed and is now under on, on cl clinical investigation. And then there's uh, the, the blocking of uh, the, the ITG cycling across the cell by inhibiting the FCRN receptor, as we will mention uh, in a few minutes, and uh, complement inhibition. And if we turn to complement um, uh, mediated destruction of the neuromuscular junction, then uh, what, what happens here is that you form these membrane attack complexes, which are really destructive uh, to the cell, eventually leaving you with this uh, flat membrane, as we also saw before, and then uh, loss of uh, surface area and acetylcholine uh, receptors. Um, this is graphically shown here uh, in a more 3D way, which is the healthy muscle here. This, here's the postsynaptic membrane with highly folded with the acetylcholine receptors on it. This is the nerve bouton up here. And here we have uh, a, a patient with myasthenia gravis with uh, acetylcholine receptor antibodies where uh, they form uh, these membrane attack complexes, which eventually will lead to destruction of the cell surface and a much uh, smaller surface uh, area. Uh, lastly, um, uh, there's the FCRN uh, recycling of, of uh, ITG, which is, uh, a, can be a key element in, in, in treating these patients. So uh, the FCRN uh, receptor are, are, uh, is, is important in, in cycling pro proteins across the cell. Uh, it, it's taken up here in, in by pinocytosis, and when it's linked to the FCRN receptor, it can be released on the other side of the cell typically. And if it's not attached here to the FCRN receptor, the protein will uh, be destined to uh, internal destruction uh, in the lysosomes. And this is, in fact, a way uh, uh, you can also treat these patients by, by simply blocking uh, the FCRN receptor so that the immunoglobulins cannot attach uh, to the FCRN receptor. And, and, and in this way, the uh, uh, antibodies will uh, uh, be uh, degraded. I will stop here uh, because you will continue talking about the FCRN uh, mechanism. Thanks, John, for that presentation, setting the stage for what we're going to talk about. And we're going to explore more in depth FCRN and its role in myasthenia. And we'll talk a bit about its mechanisms of action and then move on to the clinical trial data. But first, let me review again mechanisms of synaptic failure. And we won't spend a lot of time because John has covered this. But as he uh, discussed with you, there are um, several mechanisms. The functional blockade by antibody to some determinant on the receptor complex, 
that inhibits the binding of transmitter to the junction. Uh, the fact that the cross-linking of antibody uh, will modulate the role of the receptor with increased internalization degradation. This turnover process is somewhere between seven and 10 days, depending upon muscle, depending upon species. And by accelerating this process, we have a net loss of receptor density. And then finally, as he mentioned, the activation of complement uh, leading to the terminal complement complex or component, the membrane attack complex, if you will, and the architectural destruction of the neuromuscular junction. And so as we target therapies, <clears throat> we can try and address each of these mechanisms. And FCRN targets the role of the antibody. It was initially described uh, in the mid 50s uh, by Francis William Brambell, who began his work in the late 40s, and he elucidated the role of FCRN and found that it was the mechanism by which maternal antibody is transferred to the fetus. And upon delivery, uh, the neonate has maternal immunoglobulin and an immune system that lasts for a variable period of time as it builds its own immune system. Over the next 50 years, there's been further elucidation in Sally Ward, when at Texas A&M in her lab in 1996, identified that the FC receptor, FCRN, is a global regulator of IgG levels, leading to an extended half-life, and then developed the FCRN antagonists using a technique of antibodies that enhance IgG degradation. And this ABDEG uh, process, if you will, has gone on to develop the first uh, commercially available FCRN inhibitor. And this work was done by Hans de Hard and Peter Ulrichs at uh, Argenix uh, using an IgG1 FC fragment that was engineered for very high binding affinity to IgG. As John has elucidated, the mechanism is one that molecules of IgG are internalized, enter the cell through pinocytosis. Um, they're held within the FC receptor, which contains acidic endosomes and the FC binds tightly to the FC portion of IgG. IgG that is not bound by FCRN is then targeted for lysosomal destruction, uh, as you can see. And then these bound IgG molecules are recycled and released back into the circulation, accounting for a three to four times longer half-life for IgG rather than IgA, IgM, IgD, uh, et cetera. In addition, FCRN plays a role with albumin, and there is a nearby binding site as well. And this comes to be important as we'll talk about uh, in a bit. From a preclinical perspective, it was found that treating monkeys with Fcartigamod shortened the half-life of IgG with a tracer, as you can see here in the dashed line. Whereas in the solid line, IgG um, is uh, persisted. And by using Fcartigamod, one could prolong the tracer of the, uh, or the prolong the uh, those non-labeled IgG molecules that were destined for lysosomal degradation. It was also found that this was a dose-dependent process, but more importantly, it affects all subclasses of IgG, IgG1, IgG3, 2, 4, uh, etc., with no effect, as I've already said, on A, D, E or M. And also with this particular compound, this FC fragment, there was no effect on albumin whatsoever. Now let's look at how we can interfere with this. 
The ADAPT study in myasthenia gravis was designed to look at the therapeutic effects of FCRN inhibition in generalized myasthenia gravis. 167 patients were enrolled. 80% of these patients had antibody to the acetylcholine receptor, 20% were non-ACHR positive, and they had to have generalized disease, myasthenia gravis foundation class two, three, or four. And they had to have an MG activities of daily living score of at least five and had to be on stable treatment. They were then randomized one-to-one -to, -one to receive active drug efcartigamide or placebo. Patients were infused weekly four times and then monitored over the subsequent course for any change in their clinical examination. And the primary endpoint was what we called an MGADL responder. And that's an individual who had at least two point change in the MGADL score, but was able to sustain it for four consecutive weeks. In order to be retreated, patients had to have worsening of their disease back to within two points of their original ADL score or have no change whatsoever after a period of eight weeks. Notably, of the 167 patients, 151 of these patients rolled over into the open label extension trial, which is still ongoing. Patients were quite evenly matched, those who had antibody to the acetylcholine receptor and those who didn't, as well as to placebo. And we won't go into the absolute details of all of the information here, but clearly the MGADL scores and the QMG, the quantified myasthenia gravis score was quite tight with each other, indicating moderately severe generalized disease. When we look at the severity of the disease, they were predominantly class two or class three. These are mild generalized, moderate generalized, with an underrepresentation in class four, severe generalized. And these patients tend to be more brittle, more unstable, and not good trial candidates in the eyes of the investigator. About three quarters of these patients were previously treated with non-steroidal immune suppressants. Uh, and one can see uh, in the last three lines uh, their role uh, in their treatment. About 80%, up to 80% were on steroids at any point in time, and 60% or so receiving a non-steroidal uh, immune suppressant. This graphic here depicts what's happened to the IgG levels and the antibody levels in the ACHR positive uh, subgroup during their first cycle of four infusions. And one sees that there's a maximum reduction of about 61% in the IgG level and about a 58% reduction in the antibody level in the fall of these two parallel each other uh, quite nicely. The nadir is reached approximately one week after their last infusion. And then one sees a slow return uh, to baseline. The two top lines represent the placebo arm where we see no such change. Notably, albumin levels did not change in this population of patients. This graph depicts the primary endpoint and the first secondary endpoint. And on the left, the MGADL responders in this first cycle of patients who had antibody to the acetylcholine receptor, 68% of patients achieved the primary endpoint of at least two point reduction in MGADL sustained for four consecutive weeks compared to 30% in the placebo arm. When we look at the secondary endpoint, the QMG, it too had a responder definition, three point change at least sustained for four consecutive weeks. And here we see 63% of patients achieving this who were treated with Fcartigamod versus 14%. 
And the differences in the placebo responses, I think, relate to the fact that the MGADL score is a patient-centric metric, whereas the QMG score is a physician-derived uh, component of the examination. So we're demonstrating to you that patients both had meaningful improvement in function as measured by the ADL score and in strength as measured by the QMG score. Of note, of those individuals who responded uh, in terms of the MGADL, 84% of them did so uh, within the first two weeks of treatment, suggesting that unlike many of the drugs that John spoke about, this drug works very quickly uh, and can achieve clinical meaningful response. And then the question comes up, is this repeatable? And what I'm showing you in the left graphic is what happens with cycle one versus those in cycle two. And one sees that there are very similar results. And in cycle two, 71% of the patients achieve effect the MGADL responder definition versus 26% in the placebo arm. Of note, there were patients who did not meet this definition in cycle one, but additional 37% of them did so when treated for a second time. That's not to say they didn't have improvement, it's that they did not sustain that improvement, the two-point change for four consecutive weeks. So failing that in cycle one, we picked up an additional 36% in cycle two. And the graphics on the right uh, show the response uh, in terms of the ADL score in cycle one and cycle two. Uh, one might suggest that there is a deeper score in cycle two, and this data is still being data mined. This is what we call the Christmas tree, uh, looking at the responder analysis, both ADL on the top left and QMG below that. And we said that the primary endpoint was a two-point change sustained, and the QMG score was three-point change sustained. But now let's increase the stringency of the response. How many individuals had a five-point change in the ADL score? And here we see nearly 56% versus only 11% in the placebo. And how many achieved an eight-point change? 21% in the treated arm versus 2% in the placebo. And clearly, as we increase the stringency, there is a shift to active drug response and a waning of the placebo response. And similar uh, uh, pattern is seen in the QMG score of below. On the right, we look at a uh, new outcome measure called minimal symptom expression. These are individuals who achieve an MGADL score of either a zero or a one essentially meaning that there's no active disease. Uh, and this was first described by John Vissing a few years ago. Treating with efgartigamod during cycle one with ACHR positive patients, 40% of the population achieved that response versus only 11% in the placebo arm. The ADAPT trial was very unique because there was a retreatment criteria. Unlike many of our therapeutics in trial where we simply administer it, on a chronic basis, the message to the investigators and to the sponsor, et cetera, was by patients is we want independence. And so this retreatment criteria was put into the trial and accepted by the regulatory agencies. And what it tells us critically is that no two patients are the same. More than half the patients achieve responses in excess of eight weeks. And more than a third of the patients achieve this ADL responder definition in excess of three months. Yes, there were some that only had four to six week improvement, about 11%, and there were those another third in the middle. But it showed to us that one does not need to dose continuously, that there is the possibility to use this drug when needed 
and not as an ongoing basis, much like we do with IVIG or plasma exchange if it's used on a chronic basis. Safety is shown here, <clears throat> equally matched for the most part on both sides of treated versus the placebo arm. And the most frequent adverse events that were seen were headache, some nasopharyngitis, some nausea and diarrhea to a much lesser extent. There is concern for infection, 10% seen, 11% in the treated arm versus 5% in the placebo arm. Uh, these infections were mild. Is it a reflection of numbers? Uh, only long-term data is going to give us this answer. Notably, there were no significant infusion-related events. There were some people who had some infusion events. They were not severe and more occurred in the placebo arm. Discontinuations were similar but unrelated to the use of the studied drug. The FCR in space is quite full, um, and there are others in the, uh, in the space with Janssen and UCB and Immunovant, as I show you here. Most of these are still in uh, phase two trials. Um, Janssen's product, Nipocalumab, is in a phase three trial uh, at the moment, and Rosie, as we call it, with UCB, has just completed their phase three trial and we're waiting to see uh, the data in the publication there. With that, I would like to turn this over to Professor Brill, and she's going to talk about implementation of therapy with emerging and approved novel agents for individualized management of generalized myasthenia gravis. Thanks, Chip. So I'm going to discuss implementation of therapy with the emerging and approved novel agents for individualized management of generalized myasthenia gravis. I, when doing this, I was thinking about the different patient populations that we need to address. You have the generalized acetylcholine receptor antibody positive patients. You have those who have an ocular presentation, but may well go on to generalize and are thought to be uh, the same, are, are the same pathophysiology. You have the musk positive, as you've heard about, you have the other antibodies um, that Professor Vissing mentioned, such as LRP4 and Agrin. You have the seronegative population, the thymoma population, the refractory patients, the pregnant patients, and the elderly. Uh, this was a listing of the different groups and types of mycenae that we have to deal with um, in our clinics. And the standard treatment you've heard about already, but you have um, the treatments at the top that show the symptomatic treatments that are used uh, preoperatively as, and as adjunct and in congenital forms of myasthenia. These are transient effects. These are the acetylcholinesterase inhibitors as well as immunomodulation. Thymectomy we know about, and this is indicated for thymoma and younger patients with generalized uh, myasthenia. And then immunomodulation with IVIG, PLEX, or sub-QIG uh, used uh, variably in MG crisis, preoperative and refractory patients. And then specific medications with immunosuppressants, which are currently the definitive treatment to try to suppress the abnormal antibody production. And they're shown at the bottom here with their mechanism of action from corticosteroids on down to tacrolimus. And the problem is that uh, there is a delay in onset of uh, effect for these agents that goes up to 12 months uh, with azathioprine up to 24 months. And this takes a long time out of a patient's age uh, to um, um, require a patient to wait. The treatment that we choose depends on the classification, the type, the serology, and the age. So what are the new agents that we have available to us? You've heard about them. 
ecolizumab, which is a complement inhibitor, efgartigamod, which is an FC receptor inhibitor. The benefits of these agents are that they generally have a rapid onset of action in one to two weeks. There are those who respond at later times, called late responders, to both ecolizumab and, as you've just heard, to efgartigamod. But the majority of patients who respond do so rapidly. And we use these agents uh, generally, FC receptor inhibitors, particularly when we're considering plasma exchange or IVIG. Now you uh, have seen a Christmas tree plot, and this uh, just shows you the Christmas uh, tree plot uh, for um, the Alexion study, the REGAIN study. And what is important here is that this was a study done in refractory acetylcholine receptor positive generalized MG. Um, and this um, shows the percentage of patients who received minimal manifestations, which you've just heard about, or improved on the uh, MGFA uh, scale with ecolizumab. You can see that's in the bluish color or, um, and increases. It, inc it was greater than the placebo effect during the double-blind study. And then in open-label extension, the percentage of patients who responded increased. So this shows a long-term benefit uh, to those who have had refractory generalized acetylcholine receptor positive MG. Um, and I think it's important also to remember that the patients could not discontinue all their other immunosuppressants, but did show the long-term benefit of the drug. You've heard about uh, uh, IVIG and why immunoglobulins in generalized MG are effective is not well understood. There are multiple factors, but one of the main factors is thought to be uh, the action on external immunoglobulins on FC receptors. And this uh, is thought to suppress autoantibody production. Uh, so um, there is a comparison between immunoglobulin therapy and FC receptors. The use and benefits of chronic immunoglobulin in generalized MG is known. Um, this is a, a study that we did, which was a respect, retrospective repeated measure study uh, with IVIG and then sub-QIG. The IVIG therapy was uh, about 21 months and the sub-Q was for 19 months after that. And then uh, we looked at the change in the impairments and also in um, drug use and uh, the percentage of normal and found positive benefits with a reduction in impairments and reduction in doses of peridostigmine and prednisone and an improvement in how well the patients felt. And so um, this did illustrate the benefits of chronic therapy in uh, myasthenia patients with Ig. Now you've heard how FC receptor inhibitors remove all the immunoglobulin subclasses, one to four, and therefore should remove all known MG autoantibodies, including musk. And it has been likened to a chemical plex of plasma exchange. So um, with the FC receptor inhibitors, you, you reduce the abnormal antibodies, and therefore you should reduce uh, the blocking, the cross-linking, the modulation, and the uh, MAC-activated uh, uh, membrane destruction with the loss of antibodies. And as you have seen, the antibodies, the total IgG, uh, which is uh, shown here uh, with Ekvartigamod in blue, and light blue shows the placebo that didn't change, and the change in acetylcholine receptor antibodies shown in this gray line uh, occurred rapidly, um, and by uh, week two was uh, over 50%. Um, but the drop continued a little bit beyond that. So 
84% of the people who did respond on the ADL, as you have heard, uh, did so rapidly and within two weeks. And that is associated with this drop in antibodies. Uh, in fact, half of them responded by the first week. So this shows the rapidity of onset of action. And in situations where you need this, this would be a good choice. You've seen um, in cycle one with four uh, weekly infusions that uh, minimal manifestation was achieved in 40% compared to 11% of placebo, showing the benefits during early treatment with um, this. Now, what about the novel agents? So we've shown good evidence for generalized acetylcholinoceptor antibody positive disease. There is good evidence for both Efgartigimod and Eculizumab. For refractory disease, as defined by the entry criteria uh, to the Eculizumab trial, there's good evidence for Eculizumab. Um, the evidence for refractory disease with Efgartigimod uh, isn't as strong, but you expect it to be the same, but it was a different population. For musk-positive disease, eculizumab is not indicated for this uh, IgG4 class disease, and there is minimal evidence for efgartigimod. There are, were a few patients with musk-positive myasthenia in uh, the efgartigimod study, um, and they improved, but not enough to uh, be definitive. Seronegative, there were patients with seronegative disease enrolled in the efgartigimod trial. They weren't part of the primary endpoint, and there were some Benefits to be seen in this population, not as good as the acetylcholinoceptor antibody positive, but um, some positive outcomes were evident, but it, it was limited evidence. Ocular disease, there's no evidence with anything other than prednisone. LRP4 agrin antibodies, there's no evidence. Thymoma patients, no, because they were excluded in these studies. Pregnant uh, women, no evidence. And the elderly, no evidence. So for a lot of our patients, we don't have evidence. But for generalized acylcholinoceptor antibody positive, we do have good evidence uh, for both efgartigimod and eculizumab of rapid onset of action. We know that most patients respond early, and yet uh, there is indication to continue treatment as in a second cycle of efgartigimod, the percentage of responders increased. And with the eculizumab therapy, there were late responders as well. So we have found that MG evaluation and treatment options have expanded greatly in the last few years. We're starting to individualize treatment to each patient, depending on their disease status and other factors. Uh, these novel immunotherapies are changing the landscape. There is still a need to get higher upstream to turn off the disease, um, to, to be effective and turn off the abnormal antibody production if possible, uh, rather than handling the elevated levels. And this is where B-cell therapies may be useful, although their usefulness in acylcholinoceptor antibody mycenia gravis is not very clear, um, so that uh, this is an option. It is good for uh, rituximab, is good for Ig4 disease such as musk, but less good for acylcholinoceptor disease. So it's an exciting time to be treating mycenia gravis patients because of the new treatment options we have. And I think uh, that um, the FC receptor inhibitors will really take the place of IVIG to a great extent, the same way that plasma exchange moved to IVIG, uh, and then IVIG will move to FC receptor inhibitors. Not completely, we won't lose uh, uh, complete need for these other therapies, but less uh, dependence on them uh, will be evident, I think, as we go forward. Thank you.